The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Wednesday, January 3rd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In the news, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, White House spokesperson, gave voice today to a concern that a lot of her countrymen were harboring. I think the president uh, and the people of this country should be concerned about the mental fitness of the leader. Yowza! That's quite the admission. Kind of a startling bit of introspection. All right. Okay. I don't want to end up with one of those fakie awards that Trump's given out Monday. I hear Scott Bayo is hosting. So let's play the whole clip. I think the president uh, and the people of this country should be concerned about the mental fitness of the leader of North Korea. The leader of North Korea. Kind of disturbing that until she clarified it could have gone either way. Anyway, that was the news. Not much news. Let's now move to the weather. You have what's called a weather bomb. And so that's where you get the term bombogenesis. That's where we talk about storms bombing out. I right? love it. Like, I hate it. It drives me crazy. It's just part of the truly irresponsible trend of ridiculous hype for ratings or eyeballs. The bomb cyclone, the weather bomb. Meteorologists are scientists. So how can these scientists claim the high ground on one of the most pressing issues of the day, global warming, an issue which a lot of people doubt, if these same people are going to act like carnival barkers when it comes to inventing bullshit scare tactics to describe extremely common phenomena? Bombogenesis. Unless bombogenesis is a Samba-influenced Phil Collins joint, I am not interested. Turn me on again. The weather bomb, it's just coldness coupled with a barometric pressure drop. Big deal. Once there was snow and then there were blizzards, we got that. But then there was snowmageddon and the snowpocalypse and flash freezes and black ice. The polar vortex. Okay, that was a real thing. So was El Nino. But as with all propaganda, there's always a kernel of the real that's used and used to distract you. And here's why I really hate it. It's because things are good. We say the weather is horrible or extreme or unprecedented. And to some extent, that's true. In some ways, we are having unusual and extreme weather. In other ways, let's, let's admit that there's a lot of confirmation bias. There's a lot of recency bias. When something hits, we tell ourselves it's never hit like this before. And then if you look, yes, it has. I'm not talking in general about climate. Climate's, of course, a huge long-term concern. I'm talking about weather, which can have catastrophic effects. Yet compared to the long sweep of human history, things are really good. The weather used to be the most dangerous thing in people's lives, the most mercurial thing. Every day was more or less the same, shot a horse, churned some butter, maybe there was a new king, probably there wasn't, maybe there was a war, probably there wasn't. But the thing that changed the most and changed the most suddenly and changed the most frighteningly was the weather. Now, today, compared with 99.8% of human history, Things are so vastly improved. We have 
better warning systems. We have sturdier buildings. We have more efficient government enforcement of codes. And really, really, really important, we have greater wealth. The more wealth you have, the more you can withstand any extreme weather. But we convince ourselves it's terrifying. Now, I know that this is just not a cognitive fault. This is baked into our DNA. There's something about us that likes to get scared, right? It probably goes back to being chased by a lion on the savannah. But this is why we watch horror movies. And this is why we enjoy roller coasters. This is just part of us. I get that. But when we give into this tendency on a grand scale, we turn what should be now, which is a period of prosperity and what should be prudent growth, and we turn it into a freaking emergency, we make lots of mistakes. Mistakes like Brexit or Marie Le Pen or the Trump vote or the Law and Justice Party in Poland. That's one of my favorites. Don't even think about the United States and the poor machinist in Indiana. Poland's average income, fall of communism, $2,300 in current terms. It's now risen to $13,000. It's on a pace to pass the $15,000 mark within two or three years. And it hasn't gone up and down like Brazil's. It's just steady growth. It's averaging a 4% growth. It's kind of, I don't want to say miracle, but one of the most successful and steady economic stories. And yet the right-wing party swept into power. And one of their dismissive slogans, when the people who are advocating for, you know, let's keep on the prudent path to prosperity, they would say, statistics won't feed us. This was at a time when all the best empirical evidence demonstrated that there was more material abundance in Poland than any time in Polish history. But statistics won't feed us. And that is why I hate the weather hype. Taking what should be factual communication, here's what's going to happen, here's what you need to know, here's how to prepare for it, that's all good, and turning it into a reality show freakout. And that is not good. That is in large part how we got to where we are today. On the show today, I spiel about nuclear buttons and Steve Bannon's buttons. Steve Bannon pushing Trump's buttons. He should know. The guy wears a lot of buttons. Three shirts, average of uh, five on the on the long sleeve ones and the collared shirts. About 12 to 14 buttons a day out of Steve Bannon, I would say. But first, a societal problem that maybe we think has subsided because it's covered less, but it really hasn't. We're just distracted by buttons and bombogenesis. Police killings. The count is in. And it's not much better than it has been in the last few years. According to MappingPoliceViolence.org, an obviously online project that aims to do just that, police have killed 1,129 people in the United States in 2017. I want to learn more about the group and the project, and so joining me now is Sam Sinyangwe, who is with Mapping Police Violence. How are you doing, Sam? I'm doing well. Tell me about who are you guys? Who are you guys that have put together this important project? So Mapping Police Violence is a research collaborative uh, that we launched in 2015, early 2015, uh, around the time when this national conversation about policing and police violence first sort of erupted following Ferguson. Uh, And in those early days, one of the central questions or topics of conversation was the fact that the federal government does not collect comprehensive data on people killed by police. 
And so after community after community after community came out into the streets, uh, began protesting police violence, what we heard all too often from, you know, the right wing, from the police was, you know, we don't know whether this is actually a legitimate issue. We don't even know how many people are killed by police. Uh, And that was sort of used as a way to uh, delay a solutions conversation uh, by saying that we just don't have data to say that there's really a problem happening. And so I joined with uh, activists in Ferguson, uh, DeRay McKesson, Brittany Packnett, and a team of activists and volunteers from all across the country to build Mapping Police Violence, uh, which is a comprehensive database of people killed by police sourced from uh, local media reports, criminal records databases, public records requests, social media, really a variety of sources uh, to answer those questions, to identify, first of all, how many people are killed by police, where people are being killed by police, what those racial disparities are, uh, and then also to start using the data to identify solutions uh, so that we can make progress on addressing this issue. There are a couple other sites that um, are backed by major news organizations. The Guardian is doing one. The Washington Post is doing one. How does your site differ from theirs? So since we launched our database in 2015, uh, a number of other databases have emerged. So yours was first? Uh, yeah, so we uh-huh. launched ours uh, in early 2015. The Guardian and Washington Post launched a little bit later on that year. Uh, but really, the methodologies are very similar. The main differences are that the Washington Post focuses exclusively on uh, fatal police shootings. Mm-hmm. And so if you are killed by a police taser, uh, then you're not included in their database. For us, it is anybody who is killed by police. Correct me if I'm wrong. You have to go by uh, news reports. That's really the only solid evidence you have to compile all you guys who are doing these databases, that the, the news reporters are on the front lines and you're the ones who's collecting and collating the information. So news reports make up uh, the majority of, of what we do. You know, it is cross-referenced with a variety of other sources. So uh, social media, uh, obituaries, criminal records databases, public records requests to police departments. Uh, now we've seen many states that are actually collecting this data. We have a, a richer variety of data to work with. Have you literally found uh, a police killing that was referenced on social media and nowhere else? Uh, Yes. So there was a killing in St. Louis where it wasn't included in any of the other databases. And somebody literally just reached out to me on Twitter uh, and said, you know, you didn't include this one. And that was how we discovered it. We had to investigate further from there. Turns out that this was not represented in any of the other databases. But, you know, that is the case. And we don't have every single police killing in the database. You know, according to the best research estimates, we have about 98, 99 percent. But, you know, if the media doesn't report it, let's say you're in a rural area where there's not a large media presence on a Native American reservation. And by the way, Native Americans, just as a per million, are Mm -hmm. uh, killed more often than even black people. Right. That was true. That's true this year. It was true that last year as well. So maybe we've buried the lead or, you know, talked about methodology before the headlines. So just give us some of the headlines when we go to your site. What are the major points of emphasis that you're trying to uh, inform the public about? So we documented 1,129 people killed by police uh, in 2017. Uh, How does that compare to past years? It's about the same. So every single year there are between 1,100 and 1,200 people killed by police. Uh, And that's going back to 2013, uh, which is as far back as our database goes. And it's been fairly constant year over year. Um, What we also find is that there are deep racial disparities in terms of who was killed by police, whereby black people were three times more likely to be killed by police per population, uh, more likely to be unarmed, less likely to be threatening when killed by police. Uh, And so... 
you know, that is something that we've heard study after study after study, and, and we've seen case after case validate that point. But, you know, when you look at the year-end total and you look at everything sort of in summary, you know, that just is further evidence to support that conclusion. Are body cams making a difference? So there are two things here. I, there was a study that came out looking at uh, D.C.'s police department and ba- basically concluded that body cameras didn't make a difference. Right. Didn't reduce police use of force and, and you know, didn't impact police decisions about whether they're going to arrest people or not. Um, and that's fascinating. But, you know, the reality is there are other ways in which body cameras can make impact. Uh, and what we find is that in the cases where officers were charged with the crime uh, following a police shooting, uh, there were 12 of those cases. Uh, and of those, nine had video evidence. Right. Uh, and eight of those uh, cases, eight of those nine came from police video, either a dashboard or body cameras. And so... so, so- Eight, you're saying? We, we only have video evidence of eight. Body cams only showed us eight police eight shootings. Eight of the 12 that resulted in charges. In, oh, in 2017. Uh, right. So right, overall, right. it was about, a, I believe it was about a quarter of the cases yeah. uh, had some type of video evidence. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the majority of cases where the officer ended up uh, being charged did have video evidence. So the evidence clearly is playing some sort of a role in making it more likely for an officer to be held accountable by the criminal justice system, at least regarding being charged. Now, again, we can get into convictions, which is another conversation. And really, there are yes, so if few- you have, if you have, you might have body camera evidence that would show a reasonable person, oh my God, something went wrong. That video of the hallway in Arizona where they didn't release it until after the uh, officer was adjudicated to be not guilty. Uh, every person I know who saw that said, oh my God, I can't believe this. This, I, I would think is a crime. But if the statute isn't written to call that a crime, then it's literally not a crime. Right. And and what's interesting about that is that each state has its own statute uh, around police deadly force. Some actually don't have a police deadly force statute, which is an, another issue. There are only four states that require police to exhaust other reasonable means of yeah. apprehending somebody before using deadly force. Um, and that is a huge problem because actually, according to international law, like that should be the standard. Uh, and the U.S. does not comply with that by any means. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of work needed to change those statutes to make uh, it more possible to hold officers accountable. Um, but, you know, again, the video evidence appears to be playing uh, a role in at least that decision uh, to charge the officer. Uh, and I think that that is important uh, when we're thinking about the utility of body cameras. Well, it also seems, and this gets right at the heart of your project, that one solution is just to accurately assess the data. And I know this was never really done, um, though uh, Eric Holder, when he was attorney general, wanted to do it more, and Barack Obama wanted to do it more. What is the state of that effort? Effort to try to get better data so that maybe a bunch of uh, bootstrapping upstarts such as yourself aren't the only source of uh, th- this information. Yes. Yeah, so under the Obama administration and under former uh, FBI Director Comey, they agreed to begin collecting data using essentially the same methodology that we've been using or the Washington Post and the Guardian. Um, and then they were also going to follow up with coroners uh, to get coroners reports, um, which which would be incredible. Uh, and to begin to collect a, a comprehensive database of people killed by police. Um, however, since the new administration has come in, we haven't heard anything about the progress of that initiative. And so, you know, we've seen this administration kill a range of programs uh, that would have supported the types of changes to address this issue from, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions, attorney general, refusing to uh, engage in investigations of police departments, uh, even voluntary 
uh, collaborative reform agreements with police departments, uh, all of which, you know, advice came out with a study showing that those reduced uh, police shootings by between 25 and 30 percent mm-hmm. um, in the first year. Right. So all of those things the administration has given up on or stopped. Uh, We don't know to what extent they are doing that with the data collection, but they haven't yet released any figures uh, in terms of uh, the progress of that. Well, there must have been some guy or some woman in the Justice Department. That was his job or that was half of his job or three days a week he worked on that. Is that guy working on something different now? Do we know? We don't know. Right. Uh, And so I think... What we will do is continue to collect the data uh, that we have, and we will not trust that this administration uh, will do it in any type of acceptable way. Because, first of all, one, I I doubt that they will collect the data. Two, I think if they do collect the data, we've seen, for example, with the recent uniform crime report from the FBI, uh, that they actually withhold many different data tables yeah. uh, that would have been so important to researchers trying to establish what the trends were. Uh, and so, you know, I don't have confidence that even if they did collect the data, that it would be made available in any way that would be as helpful uh, as the databases that we have access to, which are individual uh, records, individualized. Um, so we're going to continue collecting what we what we have uh, to make progress. So a few times during this interview, you basically said that all of the things we're looking at consistently fall within a range, Um, the range of overall police killings, the range of killing of the unarmed, the range of killings of unarmed black men or white men. Is there any trend line that suggests hope? And is there any trend line that really hasn't, uh, that's even gotten worse? Yeah. So, I mean, what the report shows is about as many people were killed by police uh, this past year, 2017, as the year before and the year before that. Um, However, there has been some progress, right? I think it's important to lift up the places that have made progress uh, to show that that change is possible, right? And so since that conversation in late 2014 erupted, uh, what we saw was a number of states that began taking action, a number of cities that began taking action to pass policies to address this issue. So 30 states uh, in total since then have signed into law at least one measure uh, to reform police, uh, policing. Uh, in particular to address police violence. So this ranged from changing the creating misconduct databases uh, where if an officer was fired or resigned under investigation for misconduct, they couldn't be just rehired again uh, by another department in the state. So we saw Connecticut and Colorado and other states uh, adopt that legislation. Uh, it ranges from body cameras to uh, policies that ban uh, chokeholds uh, to other things like that, uh, collecting better data. So all of those things are important. We saw a number of police departments that have also uh, made significant changes in Baton Rouge and other places. And the problem is these are large agencies that are trying to, it's like turning around an ocean liner, right? Yeah. Um, it takes time for those policies. You know, you're changing what's on the paper, but it takes a while for that to trickle down into actually impacting the daily decision making of officers uh, in the field. And so, you know, these policies have been enacted in 2015 and 2016. And so now is the time to actually look at, you know, is this actually resulting in declines? You know, it's been it hasn't been long enough, um, but we can begin to start seeing some progress being made uh, in particular states or places that have done that. And so what we're doing now is evaluating that progress uh, in the states that have passed legislation uh, so that we can make the case for further action that that needs to be taken. Uh, And then I think the other piece of this is when we look at uh, the conversation on policing, uh, this current administration has been toxic to that conversation uh, because so many of the 
changes, the, the laws that actually got passed uh, happened in 2015, happened in 2016. But this past year, 2017, uh, we've seen far fewer uh, pieces of legislation signed at the state level. Uh, and we've seen instead a number of states, I think it was 13 states, that actually signed into law what they call Blue Lives Matter bills. Yeah. Um, and in many cases, what these bills do is they increase criminal penalties on people uh, for things like resisting arrest, uh, which it, it can be used by police to actually uh, go after people that they really have no other reason to go after. It's very subjective. Uh, right, exactly. Right. Pretty sure this is Dallas. It could also be Austin. They have a different categorization from unarmed when the person is fighting with hands, uh-huh. which is just like the, fa- the most fascinating thing, right? So in the unarmed category, it will say either unarmed or fighting with hands. Yeah. And, you know, that's unarmed, right? If you don't have an arm, you don't have sure. an arm. Like your hand, it's like you literally, it's just your Unless arm. you want to be really, really, really <laughs> right. technical about the definition of armed. Right. So they just like <laughs> created a category, arms. right? Like created a category yeah. to vastly reduce the proportion yeah. that are classified as unarmed in their database. Yeah. Um, so all of those things are happening, right? Which is another concern about the federal government under this administration collecting this data because they'll play those tricks. Samson Yangwe is a data scientist and policy analyst who crunched the numbers for the Mapping Police Violence Project. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. And now the spiel. We got a nuclear showdown. Not actually a showdown of weapons, but a brag off about the relative circumference of the weapons initiation mechanism. Think about that. We're getting closer and closer to a nuclear war thanks to a guy who has a big meal the night before, you know, two scoops of ice cream, terrines of gravy, and then pads about the residents in high dudgeon and then tweets, right? Headline, shut in glutton brags about button. I think they need, by the way, to rejigger the DEFCONs. We used to think of it as a straight line. Things went up, things went down. DEFCON 4 to DEFCON 3, but really, we're not in an elevator with a vertical shaft. No, these days, it's more like a wonkavator. An elevator can only go up and down, but the wonkavator can go sideways and slantways and long ways and back ways and square ways ways and front ways and any other ways that you can think of. Fire and fury. Okay, we got to take the DEFCON slantways. This current button off. I guess we got to take the DEFCON backways. Can we just pause? Yes, I know we can't pause. It's literally impossible. But can we mentally take a psychic break? And focus for a second on what Trump thinks that button size says. Yeah, 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 phallic and all that. But does he actually think that the size of the nuclear arsenal correlates to the size of the button to use that arsenal? So when Truman had only fat man and little boy, did he have a teeny, tiny little button? But now that there are 7,300 nuclear warheads, including the retired ones, now the button's much bigger. But wait, but wait, does President Trump know? that Kennedy, right around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, controlled an arsenal with 25,000 warheads. Man, Kennedy's button must have dwarfed Trump's button. I bet that upsets Trump. Also, Kennedy's dad was richer and his wife was hotter. Man, if Trump thought about Kennedy, I bet he'd get pretty upset. But in all seriousness, I will actually tell you why Trump tweeted about button size. He heard Kim Jong-un bragging about his nuclear arsenal, scoffed at that. Trump wanted to assert dominance and point out that little rocket man had at best little, little rockets. So I guess he could tell himself or his people could tell him that there was some value in displaying strength, right? His base would like it. And that's the only thing he cares about. But why the button? Why focus on the button? Why was this the way to communicate that? I think by instinct, 
in Trump's decades as a showman, he has either come to realize or probably just instinctively gravitated to imagery that takes an abstract concept and turns it into the tangible. So remember when I was talking about 7,300 warheads or Kennedy's 25,000 warheads? Do you know what that means? I don't really even know what that means. It's hard to grasp. Once you have the capacity to destroy the world one time over, there's not much of a difference between that and two times over or three times over. It's abstract. But a button, you can grasp a button literally. That is a tangible thing. It's also why he so often derided Hillary Clinton's reset with the Russians by citing that stupid button. Scott Adams, you know, the Dilbert guy, he's pretty much a broken record on Trump. Scott Adams just delights in the fact that Trump causes his enemies anxiety. Great. He calls it Trump derangement syndrome. But he does make some good points regarding Trump's skills at persuasion. And he notes that Trump is constantly evoking the tangible example. Let's take ISIS. ISIS is kind of an abstract threat. So that's why when Trump talks about them, he doesn't just say they drown people alive. Here's how he puts it. They can put people in steel cages by 25 and 50 people and drop them in the water and pull them up an hour later. Similarly, he doesn't, Trump doesn't just say America gave Iran $1.7 billion in cash. What does that mean? I can't get my head around it. He describes the pallet of money that was physically delivered to the Iranians. He describes the height. He describes the dimensions. He makes hand motions. Tangible descriptors that works on an audience, the right audience. That's what he was going for with the button thing. And that was yesterday's prefrontal cortex exploding tweet du jour. Today's amygdala melting tweet du jour wasn't actually a tweet. It was a written statement. It's quite a step. Saying Steve Bannon has lost his mind. Because Bannon, you see, has been reported to have penned a book in which he says this is relayed by Haley Jackson of NBC News. Quote, even if you thought that this was not treasonous or unpatriotic or bad blank, and I happen to think it's all of that, you should have called the FBI immediately. So that's Bannon talking about that meeting between Donald Trump Jr. and a group of Russians. And that's not all. Bannon went on to say in that book reportedly that the special prosecutor would crack Donald Trump Jr. like an egg. That's good imagery, right? This, my friends, is Shakespearean, purely Shakespearean, specifically Act 4, Scene 2 of Macbeth. So first up, we have the son of Macduff talking to Lady Macduff. If you forgot, Macduff will eventually deliver justice to the murderous Macbeth, but first, his little son, a boy of not more than 10 years old, brings up the very notion that Steve Bannon broached, treason. What is a traitor? By one that swears and lies. And be all traitors that do so. Everyone that does so is a traitor and must be hanged. And must they all be hanged that swear and lie? Everyone. The boy, young Macduff, never given a name, but let's call him Junior. Junior notes that since there are more dishonest people in the world than honest ones, it's kind of stupid for the liars to ever give in. That could be the Trump family motto. But then, not a minute or two later, men with ill intent break into the house. Remember Bannon's prediction that Don Jr. would crack like an egg? Well, listen to the words these foul rapscallions utter upon attacking Jr. in the play. Going to give you some audio that has a narrator who is, shall we say, a little bit overly involved. He's a traitor. Foul liars, the shaghead villain. What, you egg? Stabbing him. Young fry of treachery. 
He has killed me, Mother. Run away, I pray you. Dies. Yeah, I think after... You don't need dies, but you know, Macbeth, bloody play. And this is a bloody business that Bannon and Trump are in. Family and treason. The presidency could hang in the balance. Or, as with so much that commandeers our commander's attention, could be a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname, who's waiting for the Duskopolyps. Mary Wilson, just producer, just senior producer, is trying her best to gird for brisk Mageddon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. In the 70s, he provided the voice for Polar Vortex Miser. The gist, trying to be, as always, your combo genesis in the store. Upuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. Stabbing him.